Well, saints of God, let's stand together now for the reading of God's Word. As we launch now into the book of Acts, praise be to God. We'll be focusing on verses 1 through 3. I'll be reading verses 1 through 12. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which He was taken up, after He through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles, whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day, a Sabbath day's journey. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So today we're going to look closely at these first three verses in this uh, introduction that Luke gives us to this second volume, to the book of Acts. First we'll look at this idea where he says, the former account that I made. We'll see that Luke is the author of this book. And then, O Theophilus. Theophilus, this individual, he's the primary audience of this book, just like he was for the book of Luke. And then we'll look at this concept of the former account, which Luke describes as all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. And we'll kind of do a flyover, if you will, of the book of Luke, what Jesus began both to do and to teach. And it says it was until the day in which he was taken up So Luke again takes our attention to the Ascension Day. And then Christ's commandments that he gave to his apostles by the Holy Spirit, particularly those close to the Ascension Day. Many infallible proofs in the kingdom of God. We've looked at these things before. We'll look at them again today. So the former account that I made. I want us to see that Acts has the same author as the Gospel of Luke. Now, did you know that neither Luke, the Gospel, nor the book of Acts actually say that Luke is the author? But there's very little debate over the authorship of this two-volume work throughout church history. The introduction requires the two works. You see there, this introduction requires the two works to have the same author. Commentary says about this, the Pauline letters name some of the potential candidates who traveled with Paul. Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. So we see from Paul's letter that we know some of the people who traveled with them. To this list, one could add figures such as Timothy, Titus, Silas, 
Epaphras and Barnabas. Yet, despite the wide selection of potential candidates available as companions of Paul, the tradition of the church gives attention to only one name as the author of these volumes, Luke. This tradition was firmly fixed in the early church by AD 200 and remains so without any hint of contrary opinion. The absence of any dispute about this detail is a strong reason to take the tradition seriously. Allusions to the gospel, the gospel of Luke, appear as early as 1 Clement 13, which was written around 95 AD, and then also 2 Clement 13, which is written around 100 AD. In addition, a use of Jesus' teaching as reflected in Luke, verse, Luke chapter 10, verse 7, appears in 1 Timothy 5.18, which was written in the late 50s. Numerous texts comment on authorship. Justin Martyr, in Dialogue with Trifo, speaks of Luke writing a memoir of Jesus and notes that the author is a follower of Paul. And this was written around 160. The Muratorian canon, written in around 175 AD, attributes the gospel to Luke, a doctor, who is Paul's companion. Irenaeus, in Against Heresies, attributes the gospel to Luke, a follower of Paul, and notes how the we sections suggest the connection. And the so-called anti-Marcionite prologue to Luke, written around 175 AD, describes Luke as a native of Antioch in Syria. It says he lived to be 84 years old, that he was a doctor, that he was unmarried, that he wrote in Achaia, and that he died in Boeotia. Tertullian, early in the 3rd century, in Against Marcion, and calls the gospel, and there he calls the gospel a digest of Paul's gospel. The, the Monarchian prologue, and the date there is disputed, but it's sometime in the 3rd or 4th century, gives Luke age, Luke's age as 74 when he died. Finally, Eusebius, early in the 4th century, in ecclesiastical history, mentions Luke as a companion to Paul, native of Antioch, and author of these volumes. This is the only attention that I'll give to this question of the authorship. Uh, I think we can take it with very high degree of confidence that Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Next, O Theophilus. We see here that this man is the primary audience of the book of Acts, just like he was for the book of Luke. Uh, the text says, the former I, account I made, O Theophilus. So this is written to this individual, Theophilus. Now, it does mean lover of God, and some have suggested it's written to all those who are lovers of God and not necessarily to one any individual, but that's uh, not the primary view in the commentaries. Theophilus, the primary audience. Now, who is this man, Theophilus? What do we know about him? Well, he was also mentioned in the introduction to Luke. Let's go back and see that. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, this is from Luke chapter 1, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So what can we know about Theophilus? Well, he wrote his gospel to Theophilus, the gospel of Luke. But why? Why was it written to Theophilus? So that Theophilus would have complete certainty in the truth and the reliability of things in which he had already been instructed. The gospel of Luke was written as a discipleship document by Luke to this specific individual, Theophilus. 
so that Theophilus would be sure of his beliefs, that he would have certainty in what he had already believed. And so what we see here is the written word of God is required to grow in faith. It's delivered to Theophilus to help him be sure of the things that he already believed. Perhaps he was experiencing a crisis of faith. But we all need to grow in faith. Certainly Theophilus is no different. He needed to grow in faith as well. So I think we can also extrapolate that Luke is continuing in this same purpose for Theophilus. Luke Acts serves as a two-volume discipleship document to, to strengthen the faith of this one man, Theophilus. It's encouraging, isn't it, to see how important one person is to God and that through that love for one man, God used that impetus in Luke's life to create the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts for all the church throughout history. Bach says about this, in treating Luke 1.3, there's a suggestion that Theophilus' identity is unknown, but that he appears to be a person of high social standing and could well be a Christian Gentile wavering in his faith because of the pressure placed on the church. The name means friend or beloved by God. He could be a patron or simply the most important intended reader. Another commentary notes the name is common and that Luke 1.3, with most excellent in its address, speaks to a person, not an ideal fig- figure. In other words, Theophilus is not a symbolic, is not just a symbolic reference to those who are beloved of God. What about this word here, this Greek word for most excellent? He was likely a dignitary. Theophilus was likely a dignitary of some sort, either in the civil or the ecclesiastical realm. Um, Pastor Kaiser postulates that he may have been a Jewish priest of some sort and that this was his Greek name. Uh, Bach says the identity and spiritual status of Theophilus are unknown. Some have suggested that the name is symbolic of pious Christians since it means beloved of God. However, the address to him with the vocative Greek word seems to indicate a specific person of high social standing. This greeting could suggest that Theophilus is the patron or the monetary backer of Luke's work but there's no clear way to determine the point. So there's this individual, Theophilus, and Luke wrote the book of Luke, the gospel about Jesus, and he wrote the book of Acts to Theophilus. It appears to do so to strengthen his faith so that he would be confirmed in the things that he had come to believe. But I think we can say also that the impact of this work is by no means limited to one individual, yes? It is scripture after all. Any person seeking to be sure of the key events and teachings of Christ's life would greatly benefit from the book of Luke. And anyone seeking similar certainty about the early church will greatly benefit from the book of Acts. So we will all be grown up in our faith through the study of this book. So the former account, all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. That's what we hear in verse 1, right? The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. So we see here that Luke desires for Theophilus, this individual who needs to be strengthened. He desires Theophilus to reflect back over the gospel of Luke prior to reading this second volume. It's likely that some time has passed between the receipt of the first volume and the receipt of the second volume. 
And Luke summarizes the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, in this fashion. All that Jesus began both to do and to teach. That's a summary that Luke gives of that prior work that he had written for Theophilus. So let's look back over Luke a bit together. First of all, recall the overview outline of the book of Luke. Like Acts, there's a nice uh, breakdown according to geographical divisions. It, it's, it's large chunks based on where the events took place. So there's Luke's preface and the introduction of John and Jesus. In chapters 1 and 2, we see the birth accounts and the introduction of John. And then there's the preparation for ministry, where he's anointed by God and the places where that took place. And then finally, the Galilean ministry, the revelation of Christ to the world from chapter 4 through the, towards the end of chapter 9. And all the teaching and all the events associated with Christ's Galilean ministry. And then there's the Jerusalem journey from the northern area of Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem there in chapter, the end of chapter 9 through to uh, verse 44 of chapter 19. And then the remainder of the book takes place in Jerusalem. The innocent, innocent one slain and raised. So we've looked at all of those places and those events and those teachings of Jesus, what he began both to do and to teach. Now, I, I recommended that we take the time to read through the book of Luke in one setting, in the book of Acts in one setting. It appears from the way things worked with books during that time that they were scrolls and that you could carry one scroll that wasn't too bulky and read what they called one book in about two hours. And hopefully in one sitting you could sit and read the whole book. And the same is true for the book of Acts, each of them being around 19,000 words. I think Luke being a little larger than the book of Acts, if I recall correctly. So make note when you read of what you read in these two categories. That's what Luke tells us to do. To think about what Jesus began both to do and what Jesus taught. So listen to this list of what Jesus did in the book of Luke. Things that we've looked, looked at over the last five years. He was born of a virgin. He amazed religious leaders in the temple as a boy. He resisted the devil's temptations in the wilderness. He was rejected at Nazareth, threatened with death and escaped. He healed every kind of disease. He even raised the dead on multiple occasions, our Christ. He cast out all kinds of demons, demonstrating his total authority over all the spiritual demons and angels, all the invisible beings. He calmed a storm with a word demonstrating his authority over creation. He preached in the synagogues of Israel. He called his disciples by name. He prayed all night long. He forgave sins. He sent out the twelve to preach and to heal and to cast out demons of every kind. He fed the five thousand. He foretold his own death on multiple occasions. He went through the transfiguration. He was rejected by a Samaritan village. He rejoiced aloud before his disciples in his father's will. He taught Mary and Martha. He healed on the Sabbath. He 
had that triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He wept over Jerusalem. He cleansed the temple. He defeated all the arguments of the chief priests, the Pharisees, and the scribes. He ate the last Passover there with His disciples. He instituted the Lord's Supper. He taught His disciples about humility at that last supper. He foretold Peter's denial. He suffered and He prayed at Gethsemane. He was betrayed and arrested. He was denied by Peter. He was mocked and beaten before an unjust trial. He was crucified and He died and He was buried. But He was raised from the dead and then He walked with His disciples to Emmaus. And He showed Himself to His disciples and He taught them about the kingdom of God and He blessed them and He was carried up into heaven. These are the things that I found when I took my walk through the book of Luke again. The things that Jesus did. I'm sure you would find some more. It's encouraging to think about what Jesus did. There's no one like Him. What about what He taught? He taught His disciples about fasting. He taught them that He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He taught them the Beatitudes. He taught them to love. He taught us to love our enemies and to not judge wrongly, but to instead judge a tree by its fruit and to build our house on the rock, on Him and His Word. He taught us these parables, the parable of the sower, the lamp under a jar, the good Samaritan, the rich fool, the barren fig tree, the mustard seed, about leaven, the narrow door, about the wedding feast, the great banquet, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son, the dishonest manager, the rich man and Lazarus, the persistent widow in her prayers, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the ten minus, and the wicked tenants. Those are wonderful parables. We've looked at all of them together as we went through the book of Luke. He taught them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. He taught us to take up our cross and follow Him. He taught us that He who is least among you all is the one who is greatest. He said, woe to unrepentant cities. He taught us the Lord's Prayer. He taught us about the devil and the devil's destruction and defeat. He taught us about self-deception and the dangers of having a bad eye. He said, woe to Pharisees and lawyers. And He told us to beware of the leaven of Pharisees. He said to... Fear not. He said to acknowledge Him. Acknowledge Christ before men. He taught us to remain vigilant. He said to settle with our accuser before going to court. He taught us to repent or perish. He taught us about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the coming destruction of the temple. He said to count the costs of discipleship. He taught us that the Word of God is invincible and eternal, and every jot and tittle will be fulfilled. He taught us about divorce and remarriage. He taught us that we must forgive those who repent and reject bitterness. He taught us to do our duty quietly unto God and not to seek out public reward and public praise for the completion of our simple duties. He taught us to receive the kingdom of God like a little child. He taught it it was difficult for the wealthy to enter into the kingdom of God. He said the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He taught us about taxes, about paying taxes to Caesar, and about legitimate taxation. He taught us that the resurrection from the dead is real. He told us that He is David's Son. 
And he told us to beware of hypocritical religious leaders. He told them about the coming persecution and the wars in their generation that would serve as the signs before the destruction of Jerusalem. He taught us that all scriptures must be fulfilled and he declared himself to be the son of God. And he taught us and he taught them that the Christ must suffer and die and be resurrected from the dead. And he taught us that repentance and remission of sins should be preached to all the nations in his name by the power of his Holy Spirit. And I'm sure you'll find other things that he taught us when you read through Luke on your own. I think we need to be prepared with an understanding of these things in order to best be taught by what is given to us by Luke in the book of Acts. So I encourage us to take the time to read through the book. You'll have a list here that I've made for you. You can make your own list as well as you go through the book of Luke. Now there's this word here, both. You see, following Jesus is both doing and teaching. What did Jesus do? He did both. He carried out actions and he spoke words of the kingdom of God. One without the other is not a faithful imitating of Christ Jesus. And of course, he was always perfectly consistent. Unlike us, he was always perfectly consistent. His words were always true. And his deeds were always carrying out the truth. Bach says the combination of deed and word is a theme in Luke's gospel as the pattern of preaching and activity shows. So what you see throughout Luke is preaching activity, preaching activity over and over again, that back and forth. And so this tightly links the preaching and the action, almost suggesting that they are a package, what Calvin called this holy knot. The particle is often left untranslated, but it indicates a very close connection here. What he both did and taught. Now what about this word began? Jesus began both to do and to teach. What, What does Luke mean by that? Well, looking back over the Gospel of Luke, we can see what Jesus began to do and to teach. That makes sense. But why began? Well, because he began, but he was not and is not finished. So as the book of Acts begins, we're looking forward to see what Jesus will continue to do and to teach. Well, now wait a minute. Jesus just left. Is it Jesus done? How can he not have just begun but also finished? Because he is still in this earth. By his church and by his spirit, Jesus Christ is finishing that which he began. What he began in Luke is continued in Acts, is continued throughout church history, and is continuing today. And you, me, all of his beloved elect are participating in what Jesus is doing. We are his feet. We are his hands. We are his body in the earth. Bach says the idea that Jesus began such activity may well suggest that he is still at work as Luke writes his story of the church in volume 2. Now Acts 9 describes Christ's direct involvement, but the claim is wider than his direct visible involvement. This link is important. What the early church said and did 
was rooted in and connected to activity in which the risen Jesus Christ himself was involved. Indeed, the point is that without Jesus and his work, one cannot make sense of the church's existence and activity. What is the name of the hymn that we sang before the sermon today? Saints? The church is one foundation and is Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what we see here at the beginning of the book of Acts. Jesus Christ is the only foundation for the church. It's why I've uh, updated, if you will, the entry into our time of consecration. The book of Acts, the book of Luke, all the Bible calls us to fix our attention on Jesus. Do we need to have our faith increased, church? Saints, we do. I don't know about you, but I don't feel like I have enough faith in Jesus Christ. We need more faith. And so it's very encouraging to see that God in His Word promises that Christ will come to us and give us more faith by His Word. So Jesus began to do and teach in the book of Luke, the Gospel about His life. And then we see Him continuing to do and teach in the Acts of the Apostles. And, you know, you can pick up wonderful histories of the church and you can just see the acts of Jesus Christ continuing throughout the history of the church of the living God in the earth and he is still doing them today. Praise be to God. Next, the text says in verse 2, until the day in which he was taken up. So Luke wants us to fix our attention here not only on the book of Luke and what Jesus did and what Jesus taught in preparation for the book of Luke, but even a special time on the ascension, which, again, we're going to look at it again next week. Luke wants us to think a lot, to reflect a lot on the ascension and the enthronement of Christ at this point in his two-volume set. Luke wants his audience to again consider what he has already stated about Christ's ascension day. And note that it's about the day, until the day in which he was taken up. So not just the ascension, yes, that's the point of focus, but also the things that Jesus did and taught them on that day. Let's look back to Luke 24. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. So he's referencing back to before his crucifixion that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Of course, you can recall what he taught on the road to Emmaus. He's doing it again. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed him that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Commentary says, the account in Luke proceeds to the ascension, an event that Luke alone details in the New Testament. The ascension stands as a key divine act vindicating Christ and placing him in authority at the right hand of God. 
as we see in Psalm 110 verse 1 and is also preached later in Acts chapter 2 verses 32 through 35. The taking up of Jesus is where Luke 24 ended. The language that is used parallels passages where God has taken up righteous men directly to heaven. Acts 1 will review this departure and Acts 2 will explain it. Reflect upon the ascension, saints. Reflect upon Christ vindicated, the Father placing Him at His right hand according to Scripture. Reflect upon where He is as we are here this day. Reflect that our hearts are lifted up and that we in Christ are ascended with Him on Mount Zion. The ascension is a historical act. Yes and amen. But it is also a current reality for every saint of God. Reflect on the ascension. Live with your mind in Christ's mind seated at the right hand of the Father as you walk this earth. And you bring heaven to earth as you do so. Reflect on the ascension, saints. In verse 2, the text says, After he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. So here Luke is calling his readers to recall Christ's commandments to his apostles. Luke is taking us through a series of things he wants Theophilus to consider again before going in to the book of Acts. He's calling his readers to recall Christ's commandments to his apostles, especially those given around the time of his ascension. What were those commandments? Remember, to remain in Jerusalem and await the Holy Spirit's outpouring of power to preach repentance and remission of sins to the whole world, beginning at Jerusalem and in his name from there to the rest of the world. In addition, it would have brought to mind the necessity of the suffering, resurrected Messiah. Remember how they were awakened to the reality of the Messiah. They didn't even know that he had to die. They didn't have a concept of a resurrected Messiah. Would have brought these things to mind for his disciples. So all the major themes of Acts are present in this recollection. The church going forward in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Doing and teaching what Jesus began to do and to teach. Preaching repentance and the remission of sins in Jesus' name. By the Spirit to the whole world beginning at Jerusalem. And they were successful and there was the greatest revival that you can imagine that, that took place throughout the known world at that time. Saints of God, we need to be encouraged in the power of God. We need to be encouraged in the Word of God. We need to be encouraged in the will of God. And we need to know that we are a part of an endless flow of glory that God is bringing upon this earth. That is who we are. And the book of Acts is going to take us back into that. In a, in a greater way. Help us see in a more full way who we are, what we have at our disposal, and what we should expect to see as we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. As we walk more in understanding of the Word of God. And as we take up the power that is ours and we tread out the victory of Christ in this earth. May He bless us to grow in faith. And not see with our eyes to see with faith. Look, if you 
If you could see the invisible realm right now, if you could see the angels of heaven bringing forth the victory of God in the earth, if you could see Mount Zion, if you could see the ascended saints, if you could see the victory flowing forth from heaven's throne, you would not have problems with faith today. Like in the Old Testament where it was peeled back for a moment and all the hosts of heaven were seen. Saints, this is what the book of Acts will do for those who have ears to hear. May God give these ears to us. Amen? Amen. As we study through the book of Acts. Okay. Commentary says about this, <clears throat> the commandment alluded to here refers to the call to a mission that these chosen apostles should lead. This mission represents the next phase of God's work and takes place in fulfillment of Scripture about the Christ, as Luke 24, 47 had already declared. For Luke, Scripture is the voice of God. So the plan to take the message of the kingdom out to the world by preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins takes place as part of the divine program. Except at Acts 14, verse 4 and 14, where Barnabas and Paul are called apostles, this term refers to the 12 or to the 11, minus Judas. In normal usage, an apostle is merely a commissioned, sent agent. And this is what these 12 are for Jesus. In Judaism, such a representative speaks for the one who sends him. A man's agent is like to himself. Dictionary notes the term can simply mean delegate, a delegate, an envoy, or a messenger but it especially refers to this special group when used in Acts. They are to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem as witnesses empowered by the Holy Spirit with power from on high sent to them from the Father. The linkage between the Spirit's work and the apostles is frequent in the book of Acts. So, this preaching to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, shapes the entire structure of the book of Acts. This commandment is fulfilled in the, the way that God works in and through his church and it's demonstrated to us in the book of Acts. So it's, it's got a dynamic flow to it. In the commentaries, there's debate, maybe it should be a, a travel history instead of a, a, a history uh, fo- focused on apologetics. There's debate over that. Well, rightly so, because there's a lot of traveling in this book. If you like traveling, get ready. Put on your seatbelt, because we're going to travel a lot. There's going to be a lot of maps. There's going to be a lot of uh, studies of ancient history. We're going to have a great time going through the Mediterranean uh, with, with Paul and others. So what happens? Here's what happens in the book of Acts. Jesus ascends to the Father, and he gives a mission. Verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1. Then we see the early church in Jerusalem. They're stuck there for the first six chapters. God has to get them out. How does he do it? Persecution. It's like they forgot. It's like they forgot they were supposed to go to the rest of the world. So persecution comes. And that often persecution is what leads us to other places. If there hadn't been persecution in Europe, do you think they would have come to America? There's a good example. Persecution in Jerusalem moves the message to Judea and Samaria as a new witness emerges, and we see that from chapter 6 through chapter 9, verse 30. And then the gospel to the Gentiles and more peace of persecution in Jerusalem from chapter 9, 32 to verse, uh, up through chapter, parts of chapter 12. And then the mission from Antioch and the full incorporation of Gentiles that we see in parts of 13, 14, and 15, those chapters, 
And then the second and third missionary journeys, expansion to Greece and consolidation amid major opposition, which is another theme of the book of Acts, this major opposition which we saw in the Gospel of Luke and we still see today that consolidation taking place in chapters 15 through 21. And then Paul's arrest and the message is defended and it reaches to Rome, representing the ends of the earth. So they did what Jesus said. They did what Jesus said. They were given the power and God blessed them to bear the fruit to carry out the commands that were given to them. They preached repentance and remission of sins beginning at Jerusalem through Judea and to the ends of the earth. They did it by the end of the book of Acts. That should bring us great encouragement. Considering all that they were up against to see that God gave them success in the mission that he gave to them. Verse 3 goes on and talks to us about these many infallible proofs that we've looked at to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days. So, another thing we need to pause and consider is that Luke wants us, Theophilus, all of his readers, to be absolutely sure that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead in all of his humanity, both body and soul, as we discussed at the time that we went through it. Luke goes back there again. Luke wants his readers to know that Jesus did this over the course of 40 days. Timing is important to God. Those details, every one of them, very important to God. Now, we we can't say that Jesus was with them every day during the 40 days. But he appeared to them regularly during the 40 days. Bach says, Christ's appearances were convincing to those who had not expected a resurrection. These appearances show that Jesus was still alive. They are part of the confirmation and encouragement that Theophilus needs. To have seen the resurrection was a qualification for being a witness to Jesus. These appearances gave Jesus the opportunity to continue to instruct about the kingdom of God. He was teaching the witnesses that the rule of God he was bringing now would move on with the next stage of the apostles' mission. So, don't move forward if you don't understand the incarnation. If you don't understand the doctrine of the person of Christ, don't move on. So it'll probably be a good time to review your Westminster Confession of Faith about Christ and to, to read that section about Christ and really make sure that you understand as best as you can from Scripture the person of Jesus Christ. And that is in His birth, in His life, in His death, in His resurrection, in his bodily resurrection, his soul and his body raised from the dead, and his bodily ascension, where his body and soul, the man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, now reigns over all the world. Understand the incarnation of Christ before you move into the book of Acts. Amen? Amen. Okay. Now, the kingdom of God. Now, you know, I love this. I mean, you said, Matt, what's that one thing you want to preach on? I want to preach on the kingdom of God. I love preaching about God's kingdom. It is so exciting to me to know that the devil's kingdom will be defeated and that oppression and lies and falsehood and death and destruction and oppression of every sort are going to be undone by our great king. 
And he's going to do it in a way that brings his name the greatest possible glory throughout the whole earth. Because every knee will bow and every tongue on this planet will confess that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's going to do that. Now, he's going to do it in his way, in his timing. But he calls us to be a part of it, to understand it, to understand who he is, what he's doing, where he's taking this world, and to be caught up in it, and to be thrilled by what he is doing. The thrill of the apostles as they watched God the Father take Jesus up into heaven as he blessed them doesn't end. It's ours as well. As we're going to see, Stephen saw him at God's right hand. That's not just for Stephen. It's for us as well. See him there with the eyes that you have that you can see him. I love preaching about the kingdom of God. Speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, it strikes me just, just this, how simple this language is. Speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, (laughs) there's no other kingdom that matters like Christ's kingdom. There's no other kingdom that lasts forever. There's no other perfect king. There's no other perfect law. There's no other limitless jurisdiction. There's no other king of your heart. There's no other king that can make you love him. There's no king like him. There's no kingdom like his. And you are his beloved citizens by his blood. So now I should get to my sermon notes. This serves as a summary phrase of all that Jesus taught his disciples during the 40 days from his resurrection to his ascension. That's how Luke summarizes it, the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So Christ is the ascended in, what what does Luke want us to think about as this summary? Kingdom. So what does it mean? Well, Christ is the ascended enthroned, reigning, king of the cosmos, ruler over all things, whose enemies are being placed under his feet, whose enemies are on the run, whose enemies are being defeated, have been defeated, and are being placed in permanent subjugation one by one. His kingdom's jurisdiction has no limits. It extends beyond the farthest star and beyond the tiniest known particle encompassing everything that exists, both invisible and visible. His kingdom's law is perfect and pure and cannot be destroyed, and all are called to repent and to believe the gospel of the kingdom of God. About this, commentary says, Jesus taught his followers about the kingdom, which also was the central theme of his earthly ministry. The central theme of his earthly ministry. God's kingdom refers to God's promised rule that comes with Jesus' messianic program and activity. This expression is not as prevalent in Acts as it is in Luke. It appears 32 times in Luke and 6 times in Acts. For Luke, the idea summarizes a key component of the gospel that already had shown signs of arriving during Christ's ministry. Jesus' resurrection allows the kingdom to be preached. From a literary point of view, the probable content or themes of what is meant here shows up in the early speeches of Acts chapter 2, 3, and 4. So this remark in Acts 1 serves as another thematic introduction for us. So, 
Let's pause to reflect on some of these things together. As we consider the book of Acts and as we look at our lives today, where we are right now as Christians, in our personal lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our church life, in our culture, our community, our nation. Let's reflect on these things. Number one, saints of God, we need Scripture in our lives in order to be sure of our beliefs and in order to grow in our faith. We cannot overemphasize this. It cannot be spoken too many times. I cannot encourage you too many times to feed on God's Word. Feed on God's Word. Feed on God's Word. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. So, that's how we grow in faith. It's not some mystical, magical thing. We grow in faith by reading and reflecting upon God's Word. If there'd be one thing that would categorize you, or characterize you, is you'd be a student of God's Word. When, when you go to your grave and someone comes up and says, hey, what should we put on his tombstone? One thing that should immediately pop to mind is, in the Word. In the Word. In the Word. In the Word. You see, because... There's this idea, Tom Penning said to me the other day, talking about the sin of Moses. He struck the rock. He had the sense that he had arrived. You do know that it's not about getting more knowledge. You do know that, right? I mean, we need more knowledge. None of us will ever know the Scriptures fully. But one of the things that keeps us from diving into the Scriptures is this foolish notion that growth is dependent upon getting new knowledge from the Scriptures. We've been through this before. Please cast that hurdle aside. Listen, when you go to God's word in humility, what you're admitting to God is that he changes you by his word and by his spirit, even if you already know it. Especially if you already know it. Oh, brothers and sisters, drink the word, eat the word, meditate on the word, Make the Word of God in your life the chief. When you build your schedule, build your schedule around God's Word in your life. I beseech you, young and old, make the Word of God the food of your life. And pray for me to, to do that, for all of us to do that every day. What problems do we have that we can't trace back to not knowing God's Word, not loving God's Word, not meditating upon His Word? What emotional difficulties do we face that we cannot trace back to not knowing and believing God's Word? What decision-making problems do we have that we cannot always trace back to not knowing God's Word? What relationship difficulties that we have that we cannot always trace back to loving and living God's Word? Does this, is this you? Is it, who is the person that you know that you want to be the most like in God's Word? Let's all be like that. Let's, let's each individually, in our marriages, in our families, in this church, that this church will be known as a church in the Word, brothers and sisters. You know, this is such an easy part of the sermon to just walk past. Everybody knows that. Well, I am beseeching you today to really stop and examine yourself in light of God's Word.
Memorize it. Meditate upon it. Read it. I would stop when you just think you might want to rip the page out and actually eat it. Okay, don't do that. Okay? At that point, you've actually gone probably too far. Okay? All right. Because that's how we grow in faith. Theophilus needed to grow. Are we any different? Luke gave him such great love by giving this word to him. God gives us the same love by giving the word to us. Oh, brothers and sisters, receive it. Would you not feed your baby? Would you not feed your children? Would you not feed yourself? Would it be that all of us would rather hunger for the physical for days and days on end than to leave off God's word? Oh, brothers and sisters, I don't feel like I can stop on this yet. We have got to get more into God's word. And I'm probably preaching to myself more than anybody in this room. Okay, next. Do you think that you are as familiar with Luke's gospel as he would have you to be before going into the second volume? Before going through this study of Acts? I know for me, the answer was no. I'm not as familiar right now as I want to be. So I'm going back through it. I'm rereading it. I'm, I'm taking note of what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. Where he traveled. I'm trying to become more familiar with the book of Luke as we go through the book of Acts. So have you read through Luke in one sitting? Please do it. It's such a joyful thing. Family, I don't know if you knew this or not, but that's our goal for this evening, is to sit down and have our two-hour time together in the book of Luke. Um, And as you do that, reflect on what Jesus did and what Jesus taught, and make your list and look at it. Luke encourages us to do that from the beginning of the book of Acts. Now, a word about our lives. You know, take a look at your life. Let's take a look at our lives. Do you teach... What Christ taught. Do you do what Christ did? Well, it'll be a lot easier to answer that question if you know what he did and what he taught in the book of Luke, correct? correct? You'll need, you, need, you need to know that. And do you think that your words and your actions are consistent? Right? Now, hopefully our words are going to be truth, like Christ taught, and our actions are going to be consistent with that truth. Right? That's what we want. That's that's the goal. Words and deeds that are true, that honor God, that are consistent with one another. We don't want to be hypocrites, correct? So how can you better teach and act like Christ? I would would point you back to the book of Luke again. And again, I've got you started with a list of his teachings and his actions and things for you to consider and know. I think it's also important for us to pause here and think about the church of the living God. And it comes to us, as we've looked at already, in that idea of what he began to do, right? And so he formed his church while he was here. And when he left, he gave his church the Holy Spirit. 
And they, they had the word of God from the Old Testament. And over time, the Lord would give them the word of God for the New Testament. The apostles and Christ himself being the ones who brought the word of God to us. Um, with just a few exceptions. Some prophets not being apostles. So what about this church do we need to think about right now? Uh, there's a lot we could say. But the first question that I want to ask you is, do you see yourself as a continuation of this church, as a part of this church that Christ began then? Do you see the flow of history? Do you see where we are, who we are as a church? You know, did you know that Foothills Christian Assembly was started as an attempt to link back into the faithful historic church, what has come to be called, using labels, Reformed Catholicity, linking in after the Sixth Ecumenical Council and seeking to be that faithful church going on from there and continuing that into the future and not getting bogged down, distracted, and misled by the things that happened to the church, in, especially in the West, since then. So history is important. The flow of history is important. New Day of Small Beginnings, I recommend it to you by Pierre Cortiel. Uh, I think most of you have a, a copy of that. So are you a part of this continuing church in the earth that Christ founded, that he gave his Holy Spirit to, and does it thrill you to see that you are a part of this living body of believers that he's put in the earth? that he says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Where you can be nurtured and loved and strengthened and where we can worship him together on his day. All right, next. About Christ's commandments. Do you love his commandments? Do you meditate upon his law? Do you consider that his law is sweeter than honeycomb to you? Did you know that today the scripture that I read in the back of the room was according to the reading schedule and the lectionary that we use. And did you know that the hymn that was chosen today, excuse me, that the psalm that we sang, Psalm 119 today, was also according to a different rotation? And they ended up being the exact same thing today. Did you notice that? Did you think I did that on purpose? I did not. It just, it just worked out that way. So I would, uh, based on that, ask each of you to take some time to look at the encouragements and exhortations given to us in Psalm 119, verses 97 through 104. I won't read them again, but they're filled with exhortations to love and to keep God's laws, to keep His commandments. Our King has given us His law, and we are to love it, and we can love it by His, by his aid. Next, a word for us about the Holy Spirit. Way, conference upon conference could be put together uh, the greatest teachers and minds throughout history. We could bring them all together and at the end of it we still would have questions about the Holy Spirit. So <clears throat> certainly nothing comprehensive right now. But as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to look at the work and the person of the Holy Spirit of God. And by God's grace, we're going to grow up in our knowledge 
and our understanding of the Holy Spirit of God. Okay? But just for now, I will say is this interesting question maybe you've never thought of. <coughs> Do you love the Holy Spirit? Right? Because <coughs> I think sometimes we can forget there are three. How many persons in the Godhead? Three. The Holy Spirit is a person. Do you love the Holy Spirit? Do you call out to God the Holy Spirit to comfort you, to counsel you, to come alongside you, to help you? Do you pray to God the Holy Spirit to come and be poured out upon us by God the Father? Do you pray to God the Holy Spirit about how you may be quenching or grieving God the Holy Spirit? Um, I was talking with uh, my son Joshua yesterday, and I was thinking about one of the ways that I grieve the Holy Spirit that I'll share with you. It's very simple. I don't value the Lord. Right? So if you have a friend and you never call that friend, reach out to that friend, talk to that friend, you make them sad, won't you? They'll, they'll be sad. They'll miss you. And I think that I grieve the Holy Spirit like that. And so I'm asking you to examine your relationship with God but particularly with God the Holy Spirit. Okay? And uh, there's a book by John Owen that takes us through a relationship with God, uh, particularly communion with God. And the book goes through the scriptures one by one of our relationship with God the Father, our relationship with God the Son, our relationship with God the Holy Spirit, our relationship with Jehovah. I'll commend that to you. And finally we end up with the idea of ascension. Have you taken time as necessary to meditate upon Christ's ascension? Have you taken time appropriately to meditate upon your own ascension? That you have been ascended. You can read Romans 6. You can read it. And you can read Ephesians 1. We in Christ have been raised up with Him and seated with Him at God's right. And when we come in here, when we say we lift up our hearts, what we're saying is we're not making anything happen. Okay? You're already lifted up. But what you're doing is you are taking hold of and believing and profiting from the promise that is true of you. And so is this your life? Do you apprehend that promise regularly? Your king is ascended. You are ascended in him. All the blessings of Mount Zion are yours because Christ is ascended. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we are your beloved children in Christ our Lord. And our hearts are filled with gratitude and thanks to you, O God, in this day. We thank you, Father, for your word that you've given to us. Your word is truth. Your word is eternal. Your word is invincible. Your word will be fulfilled. Your word will stand against all things. And you, by your spirit, teach us your word. And we praise you and we thank you. Oh God, cause us to love you and your word more, we pray. Thank you for the book of Luke and for the book of Acts. And thank you for your church. And thank you for your spirit. And thank you for your kingdom. Thank you for your victory over all the forces of darkness. And thank you for giving us more faith even here today and every day as the author 
and finisher of our faith. We lift this to you, Father, in Jesus' name.